This is Benjamin Palmer, Reverend Benjamin Palmer. Thanksgiving, 1860. 23 days earlier, Abraham Lincoln was elected as the next president of the United States to take office in the new year. It's a Thursday, so the meeting at the First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans is a unique one. This is what it looks like. Jordy, hit that slide. First Presbyterians, that big building on the left there. And it's a Thursday. They meet to give thanks. It's Thanksgiving. The Reverend Benjamin Palmer ascends to the elevated platform to the right of the communion table, right over here. Presbyterians love their pulpits high because the word is high. And so he ascends to the, the pulpit on the right-hand side of the communion table to give his Thanksgiving Day sermon entitled, The South, Her Peril and Her Duty. In it, he says a number of things, including this, I quote. I want to make sure I quote here. Ours is the sober and onward work of protecting, defending, and promoting the tremendous moral trust which God in his providence has placed in our hands. Let us take care of the trust committed to us. Let us act wisely and faithfully towards them and not ruin our country and both races by the folly of the abolitionists and disunionists. The South has a divine obligation to conserve and to perpetuate the institution of domestic slavery as now existing. We will stand by our trust and God be with the right. My mother used to remind us uh, when we were kids of a preacher's maxim, I think it was a guy named Mahashevda actually, who said, believe the best and pray the rest. And so in the spirit of my mother's reminder, I'm going to assume that Palmer thought he was glorifying God with his sermon. I'm not sure, but we're gonna assume that. We're gonna believe that. That he thought on Thanksgiving Day in 1860 that he was doing his best to draw people to Christ, to give them hope and build God's kingdom in the world. And if that is the case, how did he get it so wrong? I know if I meet up with Palmer in heaven, I'm going to say to him, dude, Thanksgiving Day? What were you thinking? As a moment of aside, this white building, this is Lafayette Square in New Orleans, is a beautiful place if you've never been there. The white building right there with the American flag on top is the city hall. And as a moment of aside, based on the kind of season that we're in in the world, um, organizing ourselves around power is complicated. When our very purpose as the church is to defend the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, it's often a conflict when we align ourselves so closely with the halls of power. So that's a pint and a a pint and a, and a pipe conversation later, but I think it's interesting out of this picture. If you ever travel to France and decide to go to the town of Lyon, you should probably go to the Museum of Fine Arts because housed in a former convent, it is one of the most important museums in France. It has a whole range of collections, including Egyptian antiquities and a number of paintings, including this one. 
Anyone recognize the scene depicted there? Is the stoning of Stephen. So this is one of Rembrandt's first paintings. It's his first biblical painting, the stoning of Stephen. To the left, on horseback, you can see up in that top left, we believe that is Paul looking down on the stoning of Stephen and giving his approval. Again, we know from Paul's own writing, he thought he was serving God with his whole heart. He, he says, Without, there was no one compared to me with the zeal that I had for God. And we would ask Paul, Paul, how did you get that so wrong? So incredibly wrong. Before we leave this picture, as I was doing some research on this last week, I learned that some art scholars believe that the image right above Stephen, just to the right of the man with the, the stone raised up like this, is Rembrandt's first self-portrait. Think about that for a minute. What a revelation. See, we all would have eaten the apple in the garden. None of us would have said, ah, I, you know what, no, I'm going to pass on the apple. We all would have eaten it. We all would have been in this picture picking up a stone to stone Stephen. Remember the story of David and Nathan? Or maybe if you had kids in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I think it was, uh, who was it, King George and the Ducky or something like that? Yep, King George and the Ducky. Somehow VeggieTales transferred having sex with Bathsheba to the Ducky. I'm not sure what kind of creative meeting that was, but... You remember the story, don't you, of David? He's standing there looking out over his balcony and he sees the beautiful Bathsheba bake, bathing naked on a rooftop. I think that's why that doesn't happen very often. They've read the story and so I've looked out my window. I've never seen it. So she's bathing and he says, I, I want that. And so he takes her and of course she becomes pregnant and it turns out that she is the wife of one of his battlefield commanders, Uriah. And so he puts Uriah in a, an upcoming battle right at the head where he is sure to be killed and of course he is. And after this happens, David uh, is visited by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan tells this incredible story. And Nathan, I don't know if God gave Nathan this story or if Nathan made it up, um, but he was laying it on thick. He tells the story of two guys, a rich guy and a poor guy. And the rich guy had lots of sheep, tons of sheep. He didn't know what to do, his house is crawling with sheep. And the poor man who lived next to him had only one ewe. And in the Bible it tells us that this one man ate with his sheep. It even says that he slept with the sheep. He just loved the sheep so much. And of course, and one evening, a visitor comes to the rich man's house and knocks on his door late. He's unexpected. And of course, he's, the rich man is expected to provide dinner. And so he, what does he do? He goes to the poor man's house, takes his only ewe, slaughters the ewe, and feeds it to his visitor. And of course, David burns with wrath. It's one of the most beautiful kind of end arounds of the entire Bible because David says, where is this person? If this happened in my kingdom, bring him here. I'm going to put him to death. And of course, Nathan's just waiting. <laughs> and he says, you, you are that man. And of course, David is, is uh, overcome and repents. And Nathan says, God's going to forgive you. It's okay, but he's still your, your firstborn son will die. We are those men. We are those men. I think it's an incredibly 
powerful moment that Rembrandt realized this and painted himself into that picture. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when we judge Reverend Palmer, which we should, we also need to remember that we would be painted into that picture as well. One of the key theological beliefs for us as Christians is that we do not have what it takes. It's the reason Christianity exists. We can't go it alone. We don't have what it takes to overcome sin in the world. We need a savior. And one of those key theological beliefs is original sin. Now I should point out as we begin our journey today that theologians differ on their understanding of original sin. Um, it, so much so, in fact, that some Catholics over the years have denounced other, um, other theologians who have said, well, it's only partial or, or uh, different ways of understanding it. But it's key to our, to our thought process. And it's important for us to, to, to just dabble just a little bit in that pond. The Jews actually believe that original sin isn't what we as Christians believe it is. And they believe that this explains how someone can do good things even though they're sinful. And so their understanding of original sin is that it is not total, it's just that we're not perfect. Christians' perspective, on the other hand, typically throughout the ages, I'm not going to go, go against all of those theologians who've gone before, but typically is that we are without hope, we are fully depraved. We get this out of Isaiah 64 even. We have all become like one who is unclean. And this is the kicker right here. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Now, it is important that we think about original sin and think about the breadth of it and how much it encompasses us. And again, I would say this is a, maybe a great small group discussion. This is a really important thing because actually, as I was researching out all of the elements of original sin, I was thinking to myself, you know, that Jewish perspective kind of is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm made in God's image. I'm fallen, but I'm made in his image. What might that mean when I walk outside and see someone who hasn't said a sinner's prayer, but somehow I see Jesus in them? There's some, there's, some, there's some hours and hours of theological debate that we might have there, and I think it's good. I think it challenges us, because like last week, we want to hold some of these things lightly and ask, yeah, but how do we live? How do we live? So what on earth do we do? If, if we're in trouble, no matter which way you slice it, if it's whether we're just not perfect, and so we still can't do it on our own, or whether you're with the theologians of old who say, no, we're totally depraved, I come from my mother's womb, sinful, and that's it, we're still in a bit of a pickle. How are we gonna overcome it? We also have to factor in that throughout scripture, Jesus, Paul, Many, many people exhort us to do good. In fact, in Matthew 5, which we're going to look at a little bit more in depth in a second, Jesus says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Man, we are between a very big rock and a hard place at this point, aren't we? This is a good question. Whoever asked this was thinking. 
So we have a problem. I can't imagine that Jesus was joking with us. I can't imagine that he got up in the Sermon on the Mount and just thought, oh, this will be a real funny one. Be perfect. And everyone laughed. I don't think so. I think there's more for us. So as Christians, where does this inability to glorify God leads us? Where does it lead us to? Well, first of all, we can't. We can't. We, we, we don't have it in us. We're going to end up being Palmer. We're going to end up being Stephen. We don't have it in us. Follow this theological trail for a second. The only way that I glorify God is the spirit in me glorifies him. It's the only way. So I don't actually do it. I don't do it at all. It's actually the Spirit as a deposit inside of me that glorifies the Father. It's Jesus' only goal is to glorify the Father. And so he glorifies the Father through me, through the Spirit in me. We had a little, a little uh, graphic when I used to youth pastor. I wish I could have found it. I looked and looked and looked. I couldn't find it. I wanted to show it to you. But it's a little man, and he's got his, his arms. It's kind of like arrows and stuff, but it's a little bit of a graphic. He's got his arms kind of reached up, worshiping God. And as he worships God, this arrow comes around from God down and through that individual out. And it was the way that we expressed in our youth group how we reach up and reach out. We only can glorify God because of the Spirit working in us. It's the only way. Because otherwise we would end in inaction, wouldn't we? If all we thought was, well, I can't do it, and if I try and do it, I'm gonna screw it up, I'm going to be like, you know, some other guy named Jones is going to be dissecting my sermon 150 years later and go, dude, what are you doing? How did you think this was a good idea? So then what do we do? We say, okay, well, I guess I better not do anything. It leads us to inaction. It leads us to hide. It leads us to take our light and stick it under a bushel. But as we read off the top, that's not what you do with a light. You take that bushel off and it gives light to everyone in the house. One of the things that I love about that scripture that we read off the top was that it's just the very nature of salt to be salty. It is just the very nature of light to be bright. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's just that way, it just can't be. If you're hidden, you're not a city on a hill. If you're dark, you're not a light. If you're not salty, you're not salt. So we don't want to hide. We want, we want, to, we want to move somewhere. So I'm going to propose um, a, fo a follow-up question, perhaps, or maybe a slight twist to our question. And the question might be, how can I align myself with God's Spirit in me so that I can glorify God in my life? It's a slight semantic twist, but I think it might help us because we need to remember there is nothing that we bring to this equation. Absolutely nothing. It's one of the first things you learn in systematic theology. God is God. You are not. You bring nothing to the table. Absolutely nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 1, 9-11. This is from a, a translation called the Weiss Translation. I, um, when I was in, uh, in seminary, in theological college, which I didn't finish, just FYI, I should be just straight about that, I didn't finish it. Here's one of the reasons I didn't finish it. I decided to do Greek by distance learning. And this is not the distance learning that you just saw in the GK Kids video. They sent me a package of audio tapes, you know, like, like you remember those, those, like they opened up and they had like week one, week two, week two, like a whole audio tapes. And I confess to you that I didn't get through week one of Greek. The professor probably wouldn't have been riveting in person and on tape, he was definitely not riveting. <laughs> so I cheat. The voice translation is a really cool translation. It's a bit cumbersome, but it uses every word it, it needs to. It, it just ignores all rules of English punctuation and grammar and just tries to get across the, the meaning of the original Greek. So listen, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1. And this is the constant purport of my definite petitions, namely that your love divine and self-sacrificial in its nature as ministered to you by the Holy Spirit. Get it? The love that you're giving out is only in you because the Holy Spirit put it in you. It's not because you're good. It's just because the Holy Spirit put it in you. Yet more and more might overflow. But at the same time, be kept within the guiding limitations of an accurate knowledge of God's word gained by experience. And those guiding limitations of every kind of sensitive, moral, and ethical tact, so that you may, after putting them to the test of God's word, recognize the true value of the finer distinctions involved in Christian conduct. Isn't this awesome? Like, this should be the sermon. You guys should just read the voice translation of Philippians. He says, just let the love that's in you by the Holy Spirit and the practice of things, so you can try them out and see how it works, right? We might have had a pint afterwards with Palmer and said, dude, you tried it out, didn't work. So let's, let's go back to the drawing board, okay? So that you may, after putting them to the test of God's word, recognize the true value of the finer distinctions involved in Christian conduct and thus sanction them in order that you might be unadulterated by evil and thus pure and not a stumbling block in view of the day of Christ, having been filled full with the fruit of righteousness and continue in that condition of fullness, which fruit is through Christ Jesus. See, fruit happens in your life the same way love happens in your life, not because of the way you act, but because the Spirit's in you. See, we get it all backwards. We think that the fruit happens in our lives because of the way we act. So that person is really good, a righteous person. They act, their righteousness has nothing to do with the way that they act. It has to do with Jesus in them. How do you glorify God? You let Jesus glorify God. He's good at it. That's what he longs to do, to the glory and praise of God. In other places, I think it's Thessalonians, it says, uh, no, it's Philippians 2. It says, he works in you both to will and to act. Are you frustrated sometimes? I remember as a little kid, I used to say to my mom, 
um, when we have prayer time or something like that, I remember particularly that Romans section, you know, we talk about it a lot where I don't do what I want to do and I want to do what I don't do. And, and I remember saying to mom, I want to want to do the right thing. And you know what she should have said to me? I don't know if she did. Mom, I don't know if you did. You probably did. What she should have said to me was, don't worry about it. Jesus is in you. He works to will and to act. Right? See that, I don't know guys, if you're not getting that, that frees us. It's got nothing to do with my salvation. It's got nothing to do with the goodness that is Chris. And it's got everything to do with the goodness that is him in me. In me. So our follow-up question asks this not, and I know I'm belaboring the point, but we must recognize it, not so that we can get it right, but so that we can come into alignment with what the Holy Spirit is already doing in our hearts. It is it going to make a hill of beans a difference. You know that part in Romans where Paul says, what then? Should I go on sinning that more grace should abound? You know the reason he has to answer that? Here's why. Ready for this one? Because if you go on sinning, more grace will abound. Right? That's why he's got to answer it, because it's the truth. Because the logical answer to his argument that he's just laid out for us about grace is that yes, if you continue to sin, more grace will abound. That's the incredible place that we stand, church. If you want to, go for it. Go, go and sin. God's grace will abound. See how when I phrase it like that, it suddenly makes us go, wait, hold on, Jones, just a second. Go and sin. See, Paul isn't instructing the people he's writing to to just go. He says, look it, because that is true, live your life like it's true. We gotta get it the right way around. If we don't, all we're telling to the people out there in the world is get it right and then maybe God will meet you. And it's totally not the way, it's the other way around. God meets you, he's got it right, and I don't know, you'll make do. <laughs> That's it. That's the good news. Anything other than that, guys, isn't good news. You just exchange one set of things for another set of things. Paul needs to answer it because that is what happens. We need to let go. I, I, I thought only for a very tiny second about entitling a sermon, let go and let God. And then I punched myself in the head and said, don't do that. But essentially, that's what we're doing. There's a sailing metaphor here that might help us. Didn't know Todd was going to be here. So this one's for you, buddy. So, when I learned to sail, I learned to sail on little tiny lasers and catamarans, fast boats, and they will heel over in a wind. And when you're a little kid, you just love that. You rig up all sorts of weirdness with ropes and uh, probably very dangerous, unsafe things so that you can get as far out on the boat as you possibly can. I remember as a little kid putting my toes on the gunnels of a laser and trying to just launch myself out as far as I could so I could get as fast as I could. And the boat would heel over, heel over, heel over. And the trick about sailing is that if the boat heels over too far, you flip. And that is a real pain in the butt, especially if you're on your own. So what you have to do is you have to manage how far that boat heels over. And when you want it to stop healing, you need to let go of the main sheet. 
But this is really hard to do because imagine, I'm hanging over the side, hooked up with some sort of contraption that I've woven together out of reeds. I'm hanging over the side and I'm pulling like this with all my might hanging over the water. And in order to not flip, I have to let go with this hand. Isn't that an image of our life in this regard, right? We're so concerned about doing what's right that we're trying to get it right. We're pulling, we're cranking on that main sheet for all we're worth. And God is like, dude, if you continue to sin, more grace will abound. So like, just let go, right? This is what we're trying to do. And so we need some practical ways to do it. And I, and I will remind you at every turn, okay, that these are things to align ourselves with what God is doing in us. And the first way I'm going to remind you of that is Acts 9. What happens in Acts 9? Well, Paul, the man on the horse in Rembrandt's painting, gets knocked off of his horse. Remember the story, right? He gets knocked off of his horse and he gets blinded. And Jesus says to him, that you're persecuting me. And he says, who are you? I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. So his friends lead him to Damascus, the famous street, street called Straight. And he's with uh, them in Damascus and the Lord sends someone to him, okay? And I wanna read you the last line of this encounter. Ananias is the man who comes and he meets him, he prays for him. He who appeared to you on the road as you were coming in order that you may recover your sight and be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the goal of, of, of Paul getting knocked off his horse. It's that he would recover his sight and be controlled by the Holy Spirit. See, the prime mover in Paul's life is not that he got it right, not that he did the right things and made the right decisions and glorified God when he thought he was. The prime mover in Paul's life is Jesus knocking him off his horse and saying, hey, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's our only hope. As we are filled, that life comes out of us and we glorify him. So here's our, here's our practical ways that we align ourselves with that spirit living in us. Matthew 5. We're going to look at this. I'm going to read it all to you, and I'm going to give you four ways that we align ourselves with that spirit living in us. I think we've got it on the screen, so you can follow along because it's in this, this unwieldy translation. But I think you're going to love it. And having seen the multitudes, he went up onto the mountain. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon that we have of Jesus' uh, teaching often called the Beatitudes. And when he had seated himself, his pupils came to him. And having opened his mouth, he went to teaching them, saying, spiritually prosperous are the destitute and helpless in the realm of the spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritually prosperous are those who are mourning, because they themselves shall be encouraged and strengthened by consolation. Spiritually prosperous are those who are meek, because they themselves shall inherit the earth. Spiritually prosperous are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they themselves shall be filled so as to be completely satisfied. 
Spiritually prosperous are those who are merciful, because they themselves shall be the objects of mercy. Spiritually prosperous are those who make peace, because they themselves shall be called sons of God. Spiritually prosperous are those who have been persecuted on account of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritually prosperous are you whenever they shall revile you and persecute you and say every pernicious thing about you, speaking deliberate falsehood on account of me. Be rejoicing and exult exceedingly because your reward is great in heaven. For in this manner they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As for you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its pungency, by what means can its saltiness be restored? For not even one thing is it of use any longer, except having been thrown out to be trampled underfoot by men. As for you, you are the light of the world. A city is not able to be hidden, situated on top of a mountain. Neither do they light a lamp and place it under the bushel, but upon the lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. In the same manner, let your light shine before men in order that they may see your good works and in order that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do you follow this? Do you see the logic in this? Spiritually prosperous, being filled with the Spirit, glorifies God in heaven. So far, we haven't even got to, he says here about good works. We haven't even heard about any good works. All we've heard about is mourning and meekness and, and mildness and all sorts of weirdness here. We haven't heard, where are these good works? Somehow being spiritually filled glorifies Jesus. So that should be our aim. You want to glorify Jesus? Be filled with the Spirit. So then he turns and gives an example. Now this is really interesting because, you know, in other ways, whenever there are instructions, we kind of latch on to them, don't we? I'm sure we can find a denomination who forces women to wear hats in church because Paul said it. But somehow we don't have a denomination that forces people to walk two miles when they ask them to walk one. Right? There's a real, it's intuitive here as Jesus is teaching that these examples of good works that he gives are the outpouring of being like he has just stated. When you are full of the Spirit, when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, when you are these things, this is what it might look like. It might look like something else too, but it might look like this. You heard that it was said an eye for, in substitution for an eye, a tooth in substitution for a tooth. But as for myself, I am saying to you, do not set yourself against the evil, which is in active opposition to the good. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek Turn to him also the other. I hate this translation. You cannot get around that. I'm sorry, you just can't. And to the one who desires to summon you to be on trial and have judgment passed upon you for the purpose of taking away your undergarment, which also is weird. I mean, I'm never taking anyone to court for their gitch. But nevertheless, yield up your other garment, your outer garment also. And whoever commandeers your services as courier for a mile, be going off with him two miles. To the one asking you for something, give. And from the one who desires to borrow money from you at interest, do not turn away. You heard that it was said, you shall love your friend and hate the one who is hostile to you, hates you and opposes you. Don't you love that Jesus needs to just make sure who we know he's talking about? You know, he says, you've heard that you should hate the one who hates you. You know that guy. 
The guy who really hates you, the guy who's hostile towards you, the guy who opposes you, you got him in your mind? Yeah, that guy, that's the guy. But as for myself, I am saying to you, be loving with the divine, self-sacrificial love, those who are hostile to you. You know that guy? The guy who hates you? Yeah, that guy. The guy who opposes you? Yeah, be divine. He does it twice in the space of one sentence. It's awesome. And be praying for those who are persecuting you in order that you may become sons of your Father in heaven. And this is just beautiful. It's going to make me cry. Because, why? Why would we live like that? Because he causes to shine on those who are actively opposed to that which is good and upon those who are good and causes it to rain on those who are fair and equitable in their dealings with others and those who are not. God does that. God lets it rain on the ungodly. God lets it rain on the unjust. That's why we should be that way. And how do we get that way? It's not by making a list. It's not by saying two miles, got it. One mile, two miles. Underwear, jacket. Okay, I got it. It's by being spiritually prosperous, by filling ourselves with the Holy Spirit. And not even the collectors, oh, for if you are loving those who are loving you, what reward are you having? Are not even the collectors of taxes doing the same thing? And if you greet with deference and respect your brethren only, what more are you doing? Are not even the pagan Gentiles doing the same thing? He's basically saying here, look, you're just basically Canadian if you're nice to people who are nice to you. You need to be nice to other people. You need to be nice to people from other places too. Therefore, as for you, you shall be those, get it, who are complete in character, even as your Father in heaven is complete in his being. Okay, four points. Now remember, don't get lost here. These do nothing for you. They don't give you more grace. They don't give you more salvation. They don't get you in better standing. These are just aligning yourself with the Spirit of God living in you. If you miss that point, this is going to be all for naught. Four points to align yourself with the Spirit living in you. Number one, it's about character, not behavior. Now, I admit that there are some semantics going on here, but if you look at the instructions of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and compare them to other instructions, the primary instruction to the listers is about their character. Peaceful, hungry for righteousness. And he goes on, as we said, to give examples of how that could work. So develop your character. Develop your inner character. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self. They're, they're elements of character. They don't tell us what to do to glorify God. They tell us how to be to glorify God. Right? His being gives you character. Did you catch that, the last verse? His being gives you character. Therefore, as for you, you shall be those who are complete in your character, even as your Father in heaven is complete in his being. That's, that'll preach. Yeah. Right? Because he is, then I can be 
like him. That's incredible. So number one, it's about character, not behavior. Number two, stay in your lane. This is a little bit more obscure, but I think you'll recognize this theme throughout uh, Scripture, not just here. It comes as Jesus encourages his his listeners to pray for those who are persecuting you. And he reminds them, in much the same way that we were reminded last week, that it is he who causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and it is he who causes the rain to fall on the unjust or the just. Some things are your responsibility, and some things are his, so stay in your lane, okay? This, is, this, is, this, this um, section reminds us of the, of the parts that we watched la- or listened to last week out of Job, right? This is Jesus saying, hey, look, you think it's hard to love the person who persecutes you? Do something about the rain, buddy. Can't do it? Oh, well, do something about the sun. Oh, that's not you either, right? Okay. So then be like me, right? Stay in your lane. Number three, make a difference. Now this one was so close to, to, to shying away from my main point that I have to remind you, okay? If you don't choose to make a difference, it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> you can still find yourself in the clutches of God's grace, right? But as we're building our character, Matthew 5 seems to say, hey guys, make a difference. As we align ourselves with his spirit, make a difference. Salt makes a difference. It makes a big difference. You ever over-salted something? It's disgusting. But vice versa, if you ever under-salted, it's disgusting. It makes a big difference. Light is light. It makes a big difference. Little tiniest pinprick of light can make a huge difference. They make a difference because of the very nature that they are. And this is what reinforces that point so beautifully. It is just because of who they are. It's just because of that fruit that just happens. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And number four, Kath, my last one. Number four, reorder your values. Now this could be ongoing because as the spirit moves in us and as we align ourselves more closely to his spirit, we got to reorder our values in the same way that we're to make a difference. I think we could also maybe even rephrase this to say that we're supposed to be different. The values presented here in Matthew 5 are not the world's values at all, nor are they values of any culture in history. Think of Paul saying, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others, even those who hate you. Value your spiritual growth over financial growth or physical growth. Those are weird. The examples that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, they're they're really weird. They're different. We need to reorder our values to, again, align with the spirit living in us. And this is where we end. Because holding all these four things up is being full of the spirit. I want to leave us by by suggesting that maybe we need to get knocked off our horse if we want to glorify God and allow him to fill us with his Holy Spirit.